surprise you. <laughs> no, I'd like to read you a story. It's from the Middle Length Discourses in, in Buddhist teachings. And I think probably many of you who are familiar with Buddhist stories will know this one. But, but all the better if you're not. You know, then you're, you can approach it with a fresh mind. And if you have heard it before, you can approach it with a fresh mind anyway. And here's what I'd like to suggest. That when you hear this story, th- there's a variety of details and particulars to the story. See, can you notice, um, is there any one or couple of details that stand out for you? And not loud enough? Okay. Can you turn the No? How's this? Ah, yes. Did you hear any of that? <laughs> okay. I'm going to read a story. And you, you, if you could listen to this story and, and try to note what of the particulars, or the details of this story are most notable to you. It's not, not so much can you remember them all, but can you notice which one maybe has more significance for you? A- and, and then we'll take it from there. Okay, here's the story. So Shakyamuni was going to go for a walk uh, and in a dangerous area. And he was, as it says here, he was advised for a second time and a third time. He was advised not to do it but he decided to do it anyway. And by and by, uh, uh, and so he walked in an area where there was a, a noted uh, murderer, Angulimala. So by and by, Angulimala saw Buddha, Shakyamuni Buddha, coming in the distance. Seeing him, he thought, this is wonderful, this is marvelous. I, I, I like to murder people, and here comes a monk alone, unaccompanied." as if driven by fate. Why don't I kill him? So taking his sword, his shield, his bow and quiver, he set up to close in behind the Buddha. With a feat of supernatural power, the Buddha made it so that Angulimala, going as fast as he could, could not catch up with the Buddha walking at his normal pace. Amazed, Angulimala thought, well, I'm going as fast as I can and fast enough to catch up with a swift horse or a swift deer. I can't catch up with this monk. Stopping, Angulimala called out, Stop, monk, stop, monk. In reply, the Buddha said, I have stopped, Angulimala. You should stop as well. Amazed, Angulimala addressed the Buddha in the following verse. While you are walking, you tell me you've stopped. While I stand stopped, you tell me I have not stopped. How is it that you have stopped and I have not? In reply, the Buddha said, I have forever stopped all violence towards all living beings. But toward things that live, you have no restraint. That is why I have stopped and you have not. Angulimala responded, Hmm, you entered this great forest for my sake. Having heard your teaching, I will renounce evil forever. Angulimala flung down his weapons in a deep ravine, bowed at the Buddha's feet, and asked for ordination. With the simple words, Come, monk. Angulimala was made a monk, and in due time he became an arahant, a fully enlightened person. So what detail or details of that stood out for you? Seemed most significant? Stopping. Stopping. Okay. Thank you. Renunciation. Dangerous 
dangerous area in the mind, in the mind of a murderer. Yes. How just the mere presence of the Buddha and so few words could change someone's life. how the Buddha had already decided that he wasn't going to have violence in his life and how that was just not going to happen for him. The Buddha was not efforting at all, and yet Angulimala was, but couldn't get anywhere. Yes. Angulimala felt that the Buddha had come for his sake and he felt the love and in feeling that love he could let go of the hate. Please. Angulimala was hearing but not listening. Mm. The Buddha was advised not to go and went anyway. Angulimala liked to murder people. Yes, please. Mm. The Buddha spoke the truth, and so Angulimala spoke his truth back in response. The Buddha must have had faith that Angulimala wouldn't kill anymore. He brought him back. It doesn't quite, well, it says he ordained him. It says quite simply, with simple words, come, monk, he ordained him. And then he brought him back to the Sangha. That the the murderer was in 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 response to the situation able to have a civil dialogue and just question how could this be? Please. The contrast between Angulimala running and not being able to get there and the Buddha had already arrived. Yes. The weakness in the story was a reference to a supernatural rather than a supranatural. 
story, uh, action on the part of the Buddha. Um, Um, yeah, it's a nice way to put it. The, the difference between being within human capacity and being beyond human capacity. Okay. So the great thing about stories is that they're about yourself. You know, you get to notice um, a detail, and it's where you meet the story. You know? And 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 so in spiritual, most spiritual traditions, the story is is used. Um, and so sometimes the story is read to us. Sometimes the story happens inside our own head. <laughs> and it's interesting, even when it happens in our own head, we're still not quite so convinced that it's our own construct. <laughs> and then, of course, when it's outside, when someone reads it to us and we make our interpretation, then it's easier not to notice it's our own construct. Um, but when we listen, you know, when, when we listen with a certain kind of attunement or appreciation, or when, when we listen with our own heart of wisdom, <coughs> we hear wisdom, you know. And it, it's the wisdom inside recognizing itself in the story. So then for us in our practice, what, what, what is it to be attuned in this way? You know, what, what is it to meet what arises inside, what arises outside, in a way that something is realized? So this is one thought I'd ask you to hold. What, what is that way of meeting? You know? And then this whole story is about meeting. You know? it, it's about meeting of you know, seemingly very different people. You know? One's a ferocious murderer who actually takes enjoyment in killing and the other one is a sage who who takes enjoyment in being in the moment, who takes enjoyment in meeting each and every person with respect, humility, loving kindness, and recognition of their wisdom that's already present in them. So this... And and how can we see that in others? How can we see that in ourselves? How can that part of us that is um, busy, is rushing along, trying to get somewhere, how can that part of us meet and recognize and be tamed by, be guided by that part of us that already knows how to pause, how to stop, how to be exactly where we are. You know? so, th- so this is the inquiry of our practice. This is what we call the inquiring heart-mind of our practice. You know, of all the agendas that we have, that, that arise for us through the practical necessities, 
through the habituation of our emotional life, of our psychological patterns. You know, all these agendas rise up. And they have momentum. They're compelling truths. You know? They bring forth determined likes and dislikes. And they set us forth with, with an energy into the world. How can this way of being be met with such assurance that, that it, even in that state of being, something can be revealed? Even in that state of being, that inner wisdom that already knows can be heard. Yeah. So I would say to you, in some ways, this is what our practice is. This is what seated meditation is. This is what meeting every moment with mindfulness is. And the inquiring mind heart is to look at this. How can this be so? How, do, how can this happen in the context of me being me? How can this happen in the context of the circumstances in which I live? How can this happen in the context of how I hold my body, relate to my breath, notice my mental disposition, relate to the thought content? You know, how can this happen when I meet the people that are significant and dear to me? How can this happen when I meet the people that I think are other, yeah. that are not the same as me, that are different from me? Yeah. What, what is that shift of being that allows this, whether you want to call it supernatural, supernatural, or whether you want to just call it ordinary state, you know? In some ways, it's very ordinary to just be in the moment. It's very ordinary to just be in the here and now. I mean, are we ever anywhere else? <laughs> Despite all our <laughs> amazing and wonderful efforts to uh, conjure up the past and the future and, and to proceed with the agendas that really exhibit our life force. Okay. So that's that. And now I'm going to sit down. <laughs> well, I've got to tell you, standing up is kind of fun. It feels much closer to, like, you know, a televangelist, you know? <laughs> there's, there's a kind of, a, there's, there's more theater to it, you know? So here's what I'd like to focus on. I'm just calculating how much time I have. Here's what I'd like to focus on. I'd like to focus on this notion of stopping. Uh, and I'd like to soften it into the notion of pausing. Um, for this reason, you know, it's a formidable notion to think everything in my life, I'm going to stop it completely. I'm going to stop all those psychological patterns. I'm going to stop all that liking and disliking. I, I, I'm going to stop the way I get caught up in my thinking. You know? I mean, if you sit down to, 
to meditate with that intention. It's really quite difficult to not get enmeshed in some struggle. You know, there, there's some great evil that is there to be overcome. You know, the, part of the, the the teaching of this story is the Buddha didn't set out to overcome Angulimala. Huh? The Buddha just set out and walked. Huh? It's like if, if you set up your, your usual patterns of being as some great enemy that you're going to sit down and conquer, you know, you, you just set up the stage for another new and improved kind of struggle. In a way, you set up the stage for a new and improved kind of self-criticism. You know, there's something wrong with me, and I have to meditate and fix it. You know. Whereas in the story, the Buddha just sets out and he walks. He just walks along and lets whatever happens happens, and whatever happens when it happens, he just keeps practicing. He just keeps walking. It's like we, we, we center ourselves in our body. We center ourselves in the breath. We center ourselves in an open awareness that just experiences whatever arises. Okay, here comes a murderer. Okay, you know, I'll just keep practicing. Okay, here comes a thought about whatever, you know, this important meeting I have tomorrow. Here's a feeling of that deep, nagging, dark sense of loneliness that comes and haunts me. Okay, just keep practicing. Just awareness of body, awareness of breath, awareness of meeting the moment just as it is. This, this is the kind approach, this is the generous approach, this is the steadfast approach that enables whatever arises to be seen as itself. This is, this is the approach that allows what arises to become the catalyst for bringing up our innate wisdom. When we see ourselves grasping at something and desperately saying, I have to have it, I have to have it. Something in us, just organically, some compassionate wisdom in us, just knows how to hold that when it's held with the heart-mind of practice. So how do we cultivate that? You know, how do we cultivate that kind of continuous, steadfast effort? Um, so here's my answer to that. <laughs> my answer is something like this. Forget the stopping. But consider the pause. How about in your sitting, when that moment of awareness just organically happens? Maybe it's as simple as just hearing the quiet in the room. Maybe it's noticing that seconds ago you were immersed in a thought. I mean, anybody who's meditated more than a couple of times knows that the mind seems to be capable of endlessly generating thoughts. <laughs> it's sometimes we repeat the same thoughts so often, it's utterly amazing. And then sometimes when we hold that same notion in a tender way, how incredible that some part of us still hasn't been heard. 
and it needs to be repeated again. Let me try once again. See, can you hear me this time? Yeah. So the Buddha completely hears Angulimala. He hears him in the moment. He doesn't say to him, I've heard all about you. You're an incorrigible murderer. You take delight. You're a sadistic, incorrigible murderer. I don't want to have anything to do with you. you know? No, he, he meets the moment just as it is. And in that moment, he looks at this basic fundamental activity of unrelentingly grasping an aversion. And he just holds it with the heart-mind of practice. And he just says to Angulimala, I'm just practicing. I mean, you can yell at me. You, you, know, you, from your place of grasping and aversion, can have whatever response you have. But this is just practicing the suchness of what is. This is just being in the moment. And when that holds the aggression, the fear, the sadness, the anxiety, the desire, the resentment, when, when that grindedness holds it, any and all of those, something, some innate compassionate wisdom meets it and speaks to it. And it's interesting because when we meet ourselves with innate compassionate wisdom, it isn't that we then, you know, turn around and say, well, you're nothing but a sadistic murderer, you know. We, we see what's underneath. We see the unrelenting effort to do what? What are we trying to do except just live our lives as best we can? We're just trying to be happy and content and loved and secure. We're trying to avoid suffering, loneliness. You know. you know, can we hold the activity of our human existence with that kind of tenderness? You know, can we respect our own being? Can, can we bring that kind of deep respect to our own being? That's what brings about the pause. That's what lessens the agitation and the aggression and the yearning. So in a way, Angulimala comes to the moment with his agenda, the same way we all do when we bring our karmic agenda to the moment, and when that's met with awareness, then something shifts. But it's not because the Dharma is saying you're bad and you should be different. It's something simpler, and it's something more profound than setting up good and bad. It's just simply saying that perpetuating our own agitation just perpetuates our agitation. Walking the Dharma, living the Dharma, breathing the Dharma brings forth liberation. So now I'd like to offer you, coming at the same thing, from a slightly, diff slightly different perspective. It's, it's a poem by Mary Oliver. Um, 
And here's the poem. She calls the poem Praying. It doesn't have to be the blue iris. It could be weeds in a vacant lot or a few small stones. Just pay attention. Don't try to be elaborate. This isn't a contest, but a doorway into thanks and a silence in which another voice may speak. I'll just read that again. It doesn't have to be the blue iris. It could be weeds in a vacant lot or a few small stones. Just pay attention. Then patch together the moment. Don't make it elaborate. It, it isn't a contest, but a doorway into thanks and a silence in which another voice may speak. So when we sit, you know, when we practice mindfulness, when we practice awareness, um, it's, it's hard not to bring to that the same agenda with which we, we bring to our life. You know, so when I was asking you at the start, um, well, what part of that was notable to you? What part stood out? I would suggest to you, not only is that about you, but it says something about you. you know? I mean, it's hard not to bring some of our patterned conditioning to each situation, you know? Whether our pattern conditioned is to kind of try too hard or to fearfully hold back so that we won't have to suffer defeat, or whatever it is. Yeah. Uh, and then as we bring that, we set up an expectation of what right practice is. Yeah. When I'm practicing right, this is how it'll be. People will be nice to me, you know. Uh, they'll smile at me more often, or I will always be like this, or something, you know. Or my mind will always be concentrated and compassionate. Um, so what Mary Oliver is saying: it doesn't have to be the blue iris. It doesn't have to be that special accomplishment, that special moment. Not to say blue irises aren't exquisitely beautiful and worth our appreciation. It doesn't have to be the blue iris, even a few stones. Every moment offers itself. Yeah. So mindfulness doesn't have an agenda. It's not saying, okay, when the moment's like this, I'm going to embrace it, and when it's like that, I'm going to reject it. The disposition of mindfulness, every moment, is completely itself. And this is a form of renunciation. We renounce what we don't like and what we have to have. And we let the moment just be completely itself. You know. And as I was saying a few moments ago, not so much to think, okay, I'm going to stop all this other stuff. I'm going to stop it dead in its tracks and be the pristine, beautiful 
perfect Buddha, but rather to have the notion of pause. You know? I'm going to stop and look at this flower. Or I'm going to pause and look at this flower. I'm going to pause and just say hello to this person and look them in the eye. And just watch as completely as I can how they respond. You know? To the cashier at the supermarket. You know? To meet each moment completely. Like, in some crazy way, to make a big deal out of the simplest things. I'm going to brush my teeth with the same kind of presence as if it was the most important thing that ever happened in my life. I'm going to walk from here to my car as if this was the most precious moment in my life. So we take the so-called precious and we make it ordinary and we take the ordinary and we make it precious. So whatever way you want to call it, you know, everything is ordinary or everything is precious. But something about the universality of meeting each moment and discovering this is just itself. And then when we discover that, we discover something Wonderful. This is enough. Just this is enough. Doesn't mean that the incessant not enough and too much, not enough of what I want and too much of what I don't want, (laughs) is gone forever. Just means in that moment... This, this can be it, you know? Just walking out the door, walking in this evening or to your car. This is it. This is your life. This is where you are. This is who you are. Nothing special. And at the same time, completely itself. In that moment, can there be a pause on all the deep yearnings, disappointments, and, and fears of your life? Can they be put on pause? And for that moment, just that moment, can you just walk? So we make the practice very uh, immediate. We don't frighten ourselves to death by saying, I'm going to do this forever. (laughs) We just say, just this moment. Because as we glimpse, as, as we glimpse liberation, as we taste a drop of it, it starts to make sense to us. It starts to make sense to us, not in a way that it's something we've figured out. It makes sense to us in, the, in that way something in us already knows. The heart-mind of our innate knowing, that's what it makes sense to. And we, we can hear it a hundred thousand times and even our mind can say, oh, that's a great idea. I really, I, I'm really behind that. I, I sincerely believe that. But when we experience it directly, something qualitatively different happens. There is a different knowing. Because we trust the direct experience. 
and and the quality of being of direct experiencing allows the heart mind of innate knowing to speak forth. So Angulimala, even though he's had a life of ferocious agendas, when that heart mind of Buddha speaks, he gets it. First of all, he gets, wait a minute, there's a big discrepancy here. I am trying like crazy. I'm bringing murderous intent to my life. I am so committed to what I'm doing. (laughs) I'm bringing so much energy and determination to it, and I'm not getting anywhere. (laughs) And you're doing this very simple, straightforward thing. And somehow, you're just where it's at. So something in us recognizes this, this deep way of being. Something in us recognizes the authority, the compassion of being in the moment. So how do we let how do we let that conversation happen? Yeah. How do we let that unrelenting part of ourselves meet this innate compassionate wisdom? Yeah. How do we trust ourselves to be such a one? So the thought I would suggest the strategy I would suggest is pause. The pause between the inhale and the exhale. The pause in your sitting when quite organically a moment of awareness comes. As I say, maybe it's as simple as hearing the silence in the room. Maybe it's just noticing that your mind was caught up in thought. And to let it register. As Sogyal Rinpoche says, be aware you're aware when you're aware. Or as I was using the word, it's like you pause. You're not stopping everything. You're just appreciating everything. It's more like you touch it. You don't grasp it. You just touch it as it is. And then quite organically, because it's the nature of our interactive dynamic existence, something arises out of that. Maybe your mind moves back back to liking and disliking. But that pause, as it registers and registers and registers, that's our initiation. That's the Buddha saying to us, come, be such a one. Walk in such a way. Connect and relate to life in such a way. I got ten more minutes. Um, so, in Buddhism, th- there's there's a term called citta bhavana, cultivation of consciousness. So, in one way, we could say, well, well, this is about cultivating the factors of awakening. You know, this is about cultivating attentiveness. You know 
settledness, energy, patience, you know, all the factors of awakening. There's either five, seven, or 37, which either scheme you want to address. Yes, that, that's one approach. And, and this is a very valuable approach. In some ways, this is the heritage of the meditative system. You know, whether you want to think of it as Vipassana or, or Zazen or any other school, I would say. They're all about cultivating these factors. So this is one basis. And then another basis is can we release, can we, can we um, diminish the afflictions in our life? I mean, this is a wonderful story, you know, that someone is murderous and then suddenly meeting the Buddha, everything totally, totally falls away. The more usual prescription is sila, samadhi, panya. Sila, cultivating what you might call wholesome habits. cultivating, you know, lessening the afflictions. It's like making ourselves more available for these positive moments. But not in the spirit that we're broken and we need to be fixed, that we're bad and we need to be good. Because once we bring in those elements, then we're back into the realm of agitation, then we lose the basic respect and compassion for our state of being. We, 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 we lose our availability to our heart-mind that already knows what practice is. Now, th this is more just the skillful workings with what we've learned through careful attention tends to distract us from this beautiful way of being. So, first one, we cultivate a kind of... Um, we cultivate our consciousness. It's a malleable thing. It can be worked with. We cultivate our patterns of behavior, our habits, directly, matter-of-factly. Hmm. When I do a lot of this, my mind is more agitated, I'm more distracted. I fall more into yearning or aggression. Okay. And then the third one is this appreciation that Mary Oliver is talking about. It's just this realizing that every moment is just itself. That every moment is a gift. That every moment is complete. That there's something extraordinarily sweet, innocent, and immediate about our practice. It doesn't have to be the blue iris. It just could be a few small stones or even a weed. Just pay attention. Just be available. Just appreciate the gift of being alive. It's a temporary condition. You know? I just remembered of something I was supposed to talk about. <laughs> See, that's the danger of not looking at your notes. <laughs> hmm. The gift of being alive. Um, 
there's a way we can set the stopping. You know, even with our sincerity, we can set the stopping up as life denial. You know, and as sure as heck, if if we, with diligence and sincerity, set up practice as something that denies our life, we'll struggle against it. Now, however, there is a way, even with the pause, that we're inclined to think of this as some form of life denial. Why do we so incessantly get distracted from the simple practice of being aware in the moment? Because some part of it says, this isn't enough. I need to think of the past. I need to think of the future. If I'm going to have a full life, I've got to get back to worrying. I've got to get back to remembering what it is I'm yearning for. I've got to get back to remembering the things that have annoyed me. <laughs> and the people I resent. Because <laughs> otherwise it will just hurt me again. And if I don't remember what it is I'm yearning for, how will I know to keep trying for it? Um, you know, there's a wonderful schema. So in a way, you know, when we die, physically, literally, when we start to approach death, there's a grieving process we go through. And And that's what we're going to cover in the workshop, you know? Next Sunday, myself and Gary. Now, I remember a long time ago, when I was a monk in Thailand, the first practice I was given was to contemplate the loathsomeness of the body, which pretty much means there's a series of images. Hmm? You can't hear me? Sorry. How much of that did you not hear? <laughs> the end of my sentence. Sorry. Okay. Sorry. My apologies. Um, th- there's, there's a way in which when we die as we approach death, we go through a grieving process. And the grieving process, uh, as outlined by Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, if any of you are being involved in this process long enough, the hospice and things, she, she came up with a formula in the late 60s. It's something like this. The first response is denial. It's like, oh no. The second response is um, is uh, yeah, thank you. Is kind of a discontent, you know? It's like, but I don't like this. This is not what I wanted. (laughs) This is not what I've been working towards. This is not what my life's energy has been trying to create. There's a certain kind of aversion, you know, which can bubble up into anger or or maybe just worry and agitation. And then the third is, okay, can can I fix this? Can I do something to it? Is is there a way? You know, if I meditate every day, or do more yoga, or, or or drink more water, or live on a vegetarian diet, you know, will can that resolve all this? And then the fourth is resignation, huh? with its dark shadow of despair. And then the fifth is acceptance. So when I say to you, 
And I, I think when we meet it head on with the notion of stopping, we, we meet that formidable will to live. Now when we meet it with pause, when we say, okay, I'm just going to be in this moment, we can taste some of that acceptance. This is the amazing generosity of the Dharma. This, this is its deep, skillful compassion. That when we just are willing to pause for a moment and let it fully register, we don't have to um, We don't have to resolve in that moment the full force of our deep resistance to death. Yeah. Now that whole passage of grief has its own wisdom. And that's what the workshop on Sunday will be. Because whether you like it or not, we're all going to die. And I think probably with few exceptions, we all don't like that. <laughs> But the, the generosity and the compassion of pause is that we can taste acceptance. As Mary Oliver says, it's a doorway into thanks. And we can, you know, we can bring into our lives, even in the midst of our mantra, this is not what I want. This is too much of what I don't want and not enough of what I do want. Even in the middle of that, we can bring in a moment of appreciation. As Mary Oliver says, it's a doorway into thanks in which another voice may speak. some other voice that just says this is it this is the moment this is what it is to be alive this is what it is to be in this dharma hall all together this is what it is to stand up and give a dharma talk like a televangelist <laughs> This is our life. And there's nothing more beautiful than the Dharma, in my mind. Uh, but it's also... Um, it's also very simple. It's also something we should uh, be good-humored about. You know? Um, And so that's, you know, that's what I wanted to try to convey. Not so much to sort of give you a whole bunch of ideas to hold on to, but more to kind of almost communicate a sensibility. You know? Something that will pop up in odd moments in your life. whether it's a blue iris or a few stones, that something will just come alive for you. And in its simplicity, maybe even in its triviality, that you can go through this absurd practice of letting it be the most important thing in the world. I have a, a friend who's a poet, and in one of her poems, she wrote a poem, Naomi Shihab Nye, she wrote a poem about being famous. And she says, towards the end of it, she says, I want to be famous 
as the person who smiled at children. Yeah. You know, when we hear that line, we th- it's simple, but we know it's profound. So that's the voice that speaks for us when we allow it. Okay, so I've run out of time. Um, um, so let me just end by reading you the end of the evening announcements. But first of all, thank you for coming and thank you for listening to my weird talk and letting me indulge myself in walking up and down. (laughs) Um, And if I could also say to you, you know, sometimes it's helpful at the end of a talk to say to yourself, well, if there's one thing I want to take away from this, what is it? No? So maybe you can offer that to yourself. Okay. So here's the nine. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.